can't learn how to be an entrepreneur or an investor by reading about it or watching TED Talks. You have to get your hands dirty and do it. This is Brand Story, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to Brand Story. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Suzanne Bergmeister. Suzanne is the Executive Director of the Gillum Center for Entrepreneurship at James Madison University. For many years, she was the Entrepreneur-in-Residence and Assistant Director of the Forsch Center for Entrepreneurship at University of Louisville. Suzanne is also the founder of the Sunflower Business Ventures, which specializes in small business consulting. Hi, Suzanne. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you being here today. I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about all things entrepreneurship. Tell me a little bit about your path that got you. I know you were in the Air Force, and then you ended up in entrepreneurship and a lot on the funding end. Can you just tell me a little bit about how this all happened for you? Sure. Well, it certainly wasn't a straight line path. Um, this is, I think, my fifth career. Wow. So Good for I, you. Yeah. I started out life as an engineer, believe it or not, for about 13 years in the Air Force. Um, I did avionics flight test, which was really fun. I mean, and it was in um, a time when there was a lot of defense spending, so late 80s, early 90s, and so it was great fun. But something was happening in the in the world in the 90s, and that was the computers and the internet. And you know, I wanted to be a part of that, so I said, all right, the only way for me to go from you know aerospace government work to business. Um, to get an MBA because I didn't even know what a balance sheet was. <laughs> that was a, that's a good left-hand turn you took there. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. So, um, so I ended up getting, um, getting my MBA and then I wanted to go into corporate finance because I, as an engineer, I love numbers, right? So I thought corporate finance would be awesome and turned out to be not awesome. <laughs> not what you were looking for. No, it turned out to be really boring, but there was something called private equity that looked like a lot of fun. And so I said, all right, let me see if I can do private equity and venture capital and angel investing and all that. And so I did. I got a job as a venture capitalist and I was in that role for probably a dozen years or so. And then I, I always think something looks more fun. So then I said, well, the, the, um, the people that we're investing in, those entrepreneurs on the other side of the table, that looks fun. That looks like a fun job. So I said, all right, I want to do that. So I quit. I quit venture capital and I started my own company. That was Sunflower Business Ventures. And um, I realized that I had something that entrepreneurs thought was valuable and willing to pay for. And that is I knew about funding and I knew how to get funding and I knew what how to pitch to VCs and what a funding strategy should look like. And so I helped a lot of entrepreneurs raise money. Um, and so that was fun too. I bet. That's really useful to have that background and that knowledge and then take it to the entrepreneur yeah. side. Well, I sat on that side of the table for a dozen years. Yeah. And it's intimidating for entrepreneurs to try to go get you know funding and financing without knowing that world and knowing what to ask for and how to value. And there's, there's a ton of traps to fall into and a lot that people need to know. But then what happened was uh, they asked me, I was living in Louisville at the time, and, and one of the professors asked me to do a guest lecture on venture capital. And I thought, okay, I've never done that before. Let me, let me see how it goes. And they must have liked it because he invited me back again. And then another professor invited me in. And one thing led to another. And, and the university said, well, do you want to teach a whole course and we'll pay you? And I'm like, well, yeah, that would be nice. So I taught a venture finance course. And you were there for a while. You became the entrepreneur in residence. And tell me a little bit about that. What was that like? Yeah, it was awesome. 
I mean, I love my students. This is how I'm changing the world. I'm planting seeds of entrepreneurship in all of these young minds, and they're going to go out and change the world. So by default, I'm changing the world by planting these seeds. But um, I realized that I really enjoyed being working with the students. And so when the longtime entrepreneur in residence um, sold his company for millions of dollars and moved to Florida, the university said, well, do you want to um, become our entrepreneur in residence? This was in Louisville, Kentucky. And I said, yeah, that would be really fun. And so um, every job change that I've made, it's because the other, the next job looked fun. That's a great way to guide your path because, yeah. you know, you always want to stay engaged and be interested and having fresh challenges is so important. So you were there for a good long time. Were you there for like 15 years plus? I was. I was the entrepreneur in residence for 15 years. And for the last four years, I was their center's um, assistant director. Wow. So there was a lot of growth around that while you were there. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to brag, but we won two global championships. My MBA teams competed wow. around the world. And, yeah. and uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I lived in Louisville for 19 years. Never thought I'd leave. Well, it's a great place to live. I mean, it's a beautiful area. So what brought you to Harrisonburg, Virginia and to JMU and the Gillum Center? Yeah, well, it's a funny story. I wasn't even looking for another job. Um, a headhunter contacted me in February of 2021 and said, uh, are you interested in this job at JMU? And then I saw that it was in the middle of the Shenandoah Valley and I love to hike and had just read a book about hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I thought, ooh, maybe I should look into this. So uh, I threw my hat in the ring and um, one thing led to another and I came out here for the interview, the on-campus interview and fell in love with Harrisonburg and the Shenandoah Valley and all the wineries and breweries and just everything about it, the people. Yeah, it's an unbelievably beautiful place to live. You know, and then the, the town has a great spirit. JMU is a great school. It is, and everybody is so collaborative around here. I mean, I work with engineering professors and the dean and over in the College of Arts and Letters and education. And I mean, everybody wants to see this center succeed because what we do is we offer programs, events, and activities for any student across JMU campus, not just business school majors. And so we're slowly but surely building our brand. I've been here almost a year and a half. The center really fills a need that, um, you know, was never filled at JMU. And uh, I, can, I speak, you know, with experience because I'm an entrepreneur and I went to JMU. I love that JMU now has an entrepreneur center, an entrepreneurship center. It's extremely well run. I, I love the way that you all are doing it and the fact that it isn't just limited to business majors, considering I was a theater major. And what else can you tell me about the center that, I, that you would want people to know, whether it's people in this community or anywhere? Okay, well, the biggest thing is, and again, I don't want to brag, but I'm going to, um, we just won a global award. Um, there's a conference every year. It's the Global Consortium of Entrepreneurship Centers, GCEC. And last year, we were named as one of the top five finalists in the Outstanding Emerging Entrepreneurship category. And so I made the bold statement, well, we're going to win next year. <laughs> and then I thought, uh-oh, I'm going to have to do this now because I said it. And uh, we won. Because this center was um, really created, the Gillum Center was created in 2018, uh, we qualified as an emerging, emerging entrepreneurship center, less than five years old. So we won as the outstanding emerging entrepreneurship center. That's so cool. And you've had a big impact since you got here in 21. Well, thanks. I've put some structure around our programs. And like I said, tried to build our brand across campus and across the community. Um, and so, you know, it's wonderful working with the staff that I have, the team that I have, and, and the students are what really make it. Let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, you, what I noticed coming in and speaking to your students was 
the variety of types of businesses, the variety of backgrounds, you know, uh, maybe the variety of viability of ideas, uh, some a little more mature than others, some very experimental, but, you know, everyone at a different place in their journey, whether they're brand new to even the idea of being an entrepreneur or whether they were sort of already had it in their blood a little bit. Well, we have a couple of different programs. The one that you came in to speak at was our uh, competitive Duke's Venture Accelerator program. So you entrepreneurs have to apply to, um, to get into that program, and we pay them for six weeks over the summer to work on their startup. So uh, they come in every morning, and we have a, um, a round the table. Um, how, what, are, what are you working on? What are your milestones? What are your accomplishments? What are your issues? What are your questions? And uh, we, we had budgeted enough to be able to choose 10 entrepreneurs this past summer. We took 11 because there were that many that were really good. Yeah, so that's a really great program, and I know you have a lot of others. Let's talk a, a bit about entrepreneurship just in general because you have so much experience. What do you think are some of the biggest habits and skills that you've seen over time that make for successful entrepreneurs? A couple. Um, I'm famous for my quote. All my students know that I say this, that the hallmark of any successful entrepreneur is flexibility. So um, that may come as a surprise to you, but maybe not because you're, you're a successful entrepreneur. But um, I see young entrepreneurs falling in love with their solution, especially engineers. And I'm an engineer. I understand this. They fall in love with their technology. And they, they fail to fall in love with the problem because entrepreneurs solve problems. And if there's not a problem out there for that technology to solve that people are going to pay money for, then you don't have a business. You just have a really cool technology or science project. And cool technology and cool science projects are cool, but they don't always make good companies. Um, if, Like I said, if people are not willing to pay some money for this product or service, then you really don't have a company. So I try to teach them, fall in love with the problem, not your solution. I love that. Yeah, and also just you talking about the one of the key, key you know, skills of being an entrepreneur is being flexible. I would 100% agree with that. And I would also add that it's not only being flexible with the situation, it's being emotionally flexible. Yes. Well, I say entrepreneurs also have to have great passion, but thick skin. Because they're going to get told time and time again, your idea is stupid. Don't quit your day job. It'll never work. You'll never get funding for it. And I've seen that happen. And there are some entrepreneurs that are very smart. They'll take that criticism, potentially pivot a little bit, but press on. And if they truly believe in their ideas, and their passion, and they work hard, um, they will make a successful company. Yeah, I think being willing to change, being open to change, and being really mentally and emotionally flexible is how you are successful as an entrepreneur. Yes, and from an investor's perspective, because I worked on that side of the table for 12 years, investors invest in management teams. And one of the biggest things they look for in a management team is coachability. That makes sense. I mean, you know, the markets change, situations change, uh, you know, the problem, even if you fall in love with that, sometimes the problem changes. Absolutely. So if you're willing to, you know, keep your head on a swivel and reinvent yourself as many times as necessary, you'll always be successful. It's the people who get stubborn about it that I see fail. Stubborn or defensive or unwilling to yeah. be coachable. I mean, these investors, institutional investors have been doing this a long time. Usually a lot of them have been entrepreneurs and then they turned into angel investors or, or venture capitalists. So they, they've seen 
the pitfalls. They've seen the mistakes that entrepreneurs have made. And so they're trying to, once an investor invests in a startup, he or she comes around to their side of the table and wants to grow that company as, as big as possible. You know, so they become a team member of that entrepreneur, not an adversary. And so the advice that they're going to give is probably spot on what's needed to grow that company. Let me ask you something about that. I, I, this is a conversation that I have with other entrepreneurs. I think it's a, a little bit of a trend going on right now. The mindset of entrepreneurs across the board for a really long time has been, once I have my company, I'm going to get funding and try to grow it as big as possible. But that isn't always the best idea. Sometimes what people want to do is have a company and make it sustainable, which isn't what angel investors are interested in at all. Well, it depends on how you define sustainable. Financially yeah, okay. sustainable? Yeah, sure. But that is, doesn't always equal growth. Not, not the kind of growth where you're just growth at all costs. You're right. You're absolutely right. And sustainable has, has morphed into something more than just financially sustainable yeah, these days. It has. And I it? think you know what I'm going to talk about here. The, the um, environmental social governance, the ESG, um, the, the, the trend towards ecologically sustainable. Socially sustainable. Yeah, the trend towards making the world a better place in addition to growing your company or at least not hurting anything in the value chain. You know, the whole triple bottom line thing, the whole benefit corporation thing. It, it's really gaining a lot of momentum, probably the last 20 years, but especially with this newer generation. They care about stuff like that. Yeah, they care deeply about it. So the sometimes I think that comes, you know, in opposition a little bit to certain types of investors that are, of course, looking mostly for a return. Well, there, there are actually funds created now that are called impact investing. So impact investing funds, which I'm thrilled about because they not only look at the bottom line, you know, they're not only looking for a 10x return, you know, by selling the company in 10 years. They're actually looking for a company that's sustainable in the new definition, meaning customers are going to feel good about buying their product or service because they know that that company cares about the environment. And I mean the global environment, but also maybe even the neighborhood where the factory exists or the neighborhood where the, the uh, workers come from. And the workers themselves. Yes, you know, oh, absolutely. And I think that's something that's changed a lot in business. And that's where I land is, you know, I've worked with an awful lot of different companies across so many different industries in the 27 and some odd years we've been in business now. And growth at all costs always equals laying people off. And, you know, that's something that happens, sure. But sometimes it's a symptom of not planning with employees in mind, planning with finances in mind solely. So I think there's a real there's a bit of a sea change going on with a lot of entrepreneurs of, go, of saying, okay, I do want the growth. I do want to, you know, accelerate how much, you know, capital and that I have access to and all these things. But I also don't want to base it on scale up as fast as I can and then cut when I need to, because it's a, it's a fairly brutal way to look at business. It is. And it, it makes it a lot harder. Um, but it's the trend that I'm seeing and it's a trend that I actually am excited about. Yeah, me too. That's why I think there's so many benefit corporations these days. I believe that now it's state regulated and I think 37 out of our 50 states allow benefit corporations, um, which is great. And if people don't know what benefit corporations are in, in a, in a nutshell, it's um, triple bottom line. So you do not have to make decisions solely for the benefit of the shareholders. 
You can make decisions in the company for the benefit of the stakeholders across the board. So people, planet, profit. Man, that's a wonderful way to look at it because, you know, the days sort of like the greed is good days of the 80s, you know, I'm glad to see them go because the, you know, running a company without thinking how you're affecting human lives, whether that's on a macro or a micro with the people you work with every day, I just don't think it's any way to do business anymore. I, I have this idealistic view that I think you can run a business and do good. You can run a business and take care of people. It doesn't have to be a zero sum game. Yes, you can. So is uh, this is something that, that I, I've talked to people a lot over the years and you have a, a really cool view on it because you work with all kinds of different entrepreneurs. Do you think it's a learned skill or do you think some people are just born with the drive to be an entrepreneur? Sort of the nature and nurture question. Yeah. And we could have a whole long conversation about that. Um, so I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. I, you know, I, I was type A, schedule driven. You know, I like numbers. I love spreadsheets. And I thought when I first started my company in 2004, my mentor, who was my venture capital boss um, previously, he, he gave me the best advice. He said, Suzanne, you need to learn to live with ambiguity. And I thought, oh, I don't know about that. Well, you know, now, now it's almost 20 years later. I've not only learned to live with it, I've embraced it. Because entrepreneurs, nothing is set in concrete, nothing set in stone. So that example is, you know, was I born with it? I don't know. I never wanted, I, I went to Cornell to get my MBA. We had one of the best, most world-renowned entrepreneurship professors there. I never took one of his classes. I wanted to go into corporate finance. I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. And look at me now. So I tell students that all the time. Look, even if you think you don't ever want to start your own company, what we teach around here is innovation and creativity, which any corporation would value because it means that those employees are thinking outside the box. They're not just going to come in, do their job, and leave. They're going to come in, do their job, and say, hey, I think we can improve this process, or I think we can expand, expand this market, or I think we can do this a little differently and maybe save money or save the planet. So innovation and creativity are valued skills in corporate America these days. So even if you don't ever have any intention, never say never, of starting your company, you're learning valuable skills by having an entrepreneurial mindset. So this is a long way of answering your question that I think it's a combination of, you know, nurture and nature. I do. Yeah, there are also, you know, a lot of different stripes. A lot of people who are just sort of the born, like I've wanted to be an entrepreneur since the moment I, I started doing things. And then there are people who, who get there through their experiences and like you did, like, you know, you get there because of the different fields you're in and then you end up with something that works really well to, as an entrepreneurial journey. But I love what you said about that. Even if you don't think you want to be an entrepreneur, studying entrepreneurship and especially creativity and, you know, putting those together, that makes a great employee because if you want to be valuable in work today, anywhere, especially in this day and age, post COVID having an entrepreneurial mindset and thinking and making what you do better, offering better solutions is how you succeed, period. Absolutely. Even in big corporations where yeah. you're an entry level, um, you know, new hire right out of undergrad. It, it's not so much these days about how much you work or how long you work. It's how efficient you are and what kind of a difference you make. So even at that entry-level position, if you're thinking outside the box and using innovation and creativity, I think you'll get noticed much quicker than someone who just is the first employee in in the morning and the last employee out in the evening. I mean, 
that's not going to cut it in this new world here. No, it's not just about nose to the grindstone anymore. It's about adding value. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a, a brilliant VP here, uh, Lindsay Lachlan, and she talks a lot about the entrepreneurial gap for people, you know, and that creating that. And I think it's something she got from Harvard and she's done a lot of like classes with them over the years. And, you know, it's just making sure that when you have employees, you're actually trying to make sure they have time to have a little bit of entrepreneurial gap in their, their roles so that they're not scheduled wall to wall because they're not cogs in a machine. They're people who can add value by being able to experiment and think on, in an entrepreneurial way. Yeah. There, there's a, a great book that just came out called The Unicorn Within. Um, we had a book signing party here. <laughs> it's Jamie Ullum. And um, she was a great speaker. And she said, you know, why didn't Hilton come up with Airbnb? Why didn't Toyota or Ford come up with Uber? Because they didn't give their employees that leeway and that permission to create. You know, large companies have deep pockets. They could experiment with startups within their, you know, corporate walls. Entrepreneurship, we call it. Yeah, that's a great term. I love that term. And also even just mid-sized companies, small companies can do that by making it part of the culture. And, you know, that whole top-down patriarchal way to work, which still exists in a lot of corporations, sure, that doesn't really allow employees to know that they have permission to be entrepreneurial within, you know, within the organization. And I think it's so important. So let me ask you a little bit about what else, you know, with the Gillum Center that you're just most proud of. You've, you've been here since 21. So much has happened. I know you just won an award. But do you have any other examples of things that you're really proud of that have happened? Last fall, I was only here for two months, but we launched the Bluestone Seed Fund, which is a donor-supported investment vehicle that makes equity investments into JMU-affiliated startups, so either JMU students or JMU alumni. Now, I can't take full credit for it because it was people had been working on it for two years prior to me getting here, but we launched once I got here. And so we have two investment cycles every year. We have a fall investment cycle and a spring investment cycle. And... Um, we interact with our students in two ways, student founders, obviously. And I try to make this as real world as possible because my background is on the investment side. So they go through a due diligence process. They go through an investor pitch with our investment committee. And then the investment committee makes the go, no go decision on, on that equity investment. On the flip side, we have a competitive program called the Student Venture Associates which I created. So these are students that want to understand the entrepreneurial and venture funding from the investor side. So they actually help us with deal flow. They help us do the initial pre-screening and due diligence. They help us with pitch practice with the entrepreneurs that are going to pitch to the investment committee. And then these student venture associates get to sit in on that investment committee and listen to the deliberations afterwards. And it's, you know, it's kind of like seeing how the sausage is made. So they get a firsthand look at how investors make investment decisions. Um, and so it's a great thing they can put on their resume. We just had it last week. We had our fall 2022 investment cycle. So it's our third investment cycle. And the committee decided to make two investments. And it's all over our Instagram and, and our LinkedIn if you want to see who got the investments. I think that's so great. And I bet the people who go through that end of the program I bet someday they'll end up uh, pursuing an entrepreneurial journey because in some ways you're teaching them about the other side, but you're also demystifying what it is. Could be. I mean, we're all about hands-on, application-oriented learning. You can't, 
learn how to be an entrepreneur or an investor by reading about it or watching TED Talks. You have to get your hands dirty and do it. Yeah, it's not an academic exercise. No, it's not. And, and everything we do is not, it's not theory. It's hands-on, application-oriented, get your hands dirty, nitty-gritty. Sometimes you fail, and that's okay. Yeah, that's great because that's what people need to learn. What are the, some of the benefits of working in the business field but within higher education? Because you're in the higher education, but you're really in the business field. And it's very unique. What, are the, what do you think the benefits are or what are the, what are the trade-offs? So I'm, I'm in academia, but I'm not an academic. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with being an academic. No, no, we're not criticizing. We're just, <laughs> But yeah. I, I don't have a PhD. I don't want one. I don't do research. We have many brilliant researchers here and at other universities, but I'm not one of them. It's not my skill set. Um, but I appreciate being in academia because we have resources. Um, we have faculty that are deeply knowledgeable in certain industries. We've got the students that have the energy and the passion and the, the knowledge of trends and things like that. Um, we are a well-funded center, which is nice. So I don't have to go out and get grants every year to fund my programs. So, so there's a lot of advantages of being an entrepreneur within academia, but not being an academic. Yeah, and then also it allows you, like you said, to spread those seeds and help educate yeah. and create new entrepreneurs. And that's the beauty of being at JMU and the Shenandoah Valley, the whole ecosystem around here. Because at JMU, everybody wants entrepreneurship to succeed at this university. And everybody's willing to be collaborative to help with that. I mean, we work with uh, student athletes, which now they can do their NIL, their name, image, and likeness, and sell you know, and get licensing deals and endorsement deals, that's entrepreneurship. We work with artists, you know, visual artists, performing artists, and if they want to put themselves out there and get hired for their art skill, artistry, that's entrepreneurship. Um, we work with industrial designers, same thing, psychology majors, history majors, engineers, computer science, web designers, um, you know, it's all, if you want to Put your skills out there. If it's a gig economy, we're talking about gig economy too, then that's entrepreneurship. And you need to know a little bit about business to be successful doing that. So even if you don't want to call yourself an entrepreneur, it's still entrepreneurial. Yeah. So do you think that a lot of people sort of just get intimidated and think this isn't for me because of the, the word entrepreneur? They think they see there's a stereotype and they think I'm not that. And so I'm not going to get education in this. So, do you think that's pretty prevalent? Yeah, I think that there are um, pockets, certain industries, maybe certain colleges that they don't like the word entrepreneur because it, it has this connotation of capitalism and profit and money and, you know, greed and, you know, and, and maybe 20 years ago that was true. I think it's all changing and we've talked about that already today. So we need to dispel those rumors that entrepreneurship is all about capitalism and greed and just making money and not caring about sustainability. And that's why I'm teaching this social innovation class. I mean, social innovation is solving social problems, you know, small ones, big ones, global ones, neighborhood ones, using innovation and creativity and business strategy and entrepreneurial thinking. That's what social innovation is. It's, it's not about greed. Um, or making a buck. But sometimes your company needs to be profitable in order to solve those problems. So, so social enterprises are not necessarily nonprofits. They could be, 
but they don't have to be, and many of them are not. That's great. And also, like, I love that you have that perspective inside academia because being a lifelong entrepreneur and having gone to the same school that the center now exists in, I wish you were there when I was there. And, you know, even I always had an entrepreneurial mindset for plays I directed. You know, and a lot of times directing a play is a just an artistic endeavor. And in an in a academic setting, that's what they want you to concentrate on. Well, half of my focus was filling the seats. I wanted, I wanted sellouts because why do it if the audience isn't going to see it? And that, that caused a bit of friction because academia tends to look at, well, we don't need the money and we're not trying to make a profit. So why does that matter? You want to make another film or another production? Well, then you have to make a profit so right. that you can do the next thing. People sometimes come out, whether it's a theater major or an art major, different, you know, I think everyone would benefit from, from learning about your center internally or anyone listening that has, you know, people in school. The being able to think that way is going to help you no matter what profession you go into. You know, because I've run in, I have so many friends that are either, you know, from the theater world, the art world, even the marketing world that never learned about how to make money or manage a company or any of these things. And I think it's a, a really, it's an amazing skill. So I hope those myths are going to get dispelled. I'm trying. <laughs> one, <laughs> We're one, trying here. One student, one college at a time. That's yeah. right. One university right. at a time. Yeah, I think it's great. Let me ask you just a couple of last questions because I don't want to keep you all day. I have a few more. And this has been this has been such a good time. I'm good. really it's so, so it fun too. talking to you. So what's something about your work at the center or about entrepreneurship that you don't get asked a lot about and that you wish people knew more about? Let me say this. One of the things I love about my job is I get to learn a little bit about a lot of things. And that, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of entrepreneurs have kind of ADD, you know, that it's like squirrel, you know, and they're like over here and over there and all kinds of things. Well, this job satisfies that desire in me because I have students, you know, that are making card games, that are doing power washing, that are doing, um, you know, patentable devices, you know, to, to, you know, and so I get to learn a little bit about each one of those industries and a little bit about each one of those products. And that's what keeps my job interesting on a daily basis. I mean, I never get bored around here because I never know what student's going to walk in here with, you know, with their eyes wide and say, I have this great idea. You know, I'm like, okay, let's hear it. And I have learned over the years, never, ever, ever poo-poo that idea. Because I know that's a technical term, poo-poo. Never poo-poo that idea because you never know with a little bit of coaching and a little bit of pivoting and a little bit of market research and customer discovery that that idea that I thought was dumb could be the next you know, million-dollar company or you know, highly sustainable companies solving a social problem. So I never poo-poo that idea. What I try to do is give them some tools, resources, some contacts, connections, to help them vet the idea and figure out if it is a stupid idea and they shouldn't launch it, or if it is, you know, if it has some legs and they should maybe pivot a little bit and maybe look at a different customer segment, which happens all the time. They're like, oh, I want to sell this to parents. And then it's like, okay, it's really hard to do a B2C. Why don't you think about a B2B model where you sell to child therapists? That happens all the time where people just assume they know who their audience should be and then discover it's a completely different audience halfway through. So that's what keeps my job interesting. Yeah, that's a great answer. I love that answer because I think that goes back to what you said about being emotionally flexible and and psychologically flexible. Because, 
you know, if you, if you had a mindset that you knew exactly what was going to work, you wouldn't be so receptive to all these ideas. And the fact that you're using, you know, you like things that are fun, you like things that are new, it sets you up perfectly to be looking at different companies and ideas and saying, yes, let me try to see how I can help any or any or all of you succeed. Exactly. And I tell them, you better learn to be comfortable with ambiguity because entrepreneurship is not a, a straight line. It's a roller coaster, you know, and it, and things will twirl around and, and all of a sudden you'll think you're on top of the world. And then the next day you're thinking that you've got a failure here. Um, but that's another thing, the word failure. In the entrepreneurial community, failure is not the kiss of death. I mean, if your startup fails, unless you did something illegal or just really stupid, you know, it, it's a badge of honor. And then, you know, and I've seen investors invest in startup companies and they failed. And then those same investors back that same entrepreneur with their second or third or fourth venture. As long as, like I said, they didn't do anything illegal or just really stupid. So a failure is kind of a, a good thing to have under your belt as an entrepreneur because you've learned from it. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to have under your belt, period. I mean, we learn more. To be an entrepreneur, you have to embrace change. You have to almost get excited by it. And if failures are going to end your enthusiasm or, or stop you, you're not going to be a very good entrepreneur. Nope. So resiliency, that's another yeah. thing that, that, that entrepreneurs have to have. Flexibility and resiliency. Yeah, and almost an unreasonable amount of optimism sometimes. Yes. Irrational enthusiasm, that's what I call it. Irrational enthusiasm, irrational belief, and then the ability to be extremely passionate about something right up until you need to let it go. Yes. Yep, or pivot or something. What's a piece of advice that you've been given in entrepreneurship or around entrepreneurship that's really stuck with you? So the different question I'm going to answer is not advice that's been given to me, but the best advice that I can give to an entrepreneur. So many entrepreneurs are um, so afraid to talk about their idea because they're afraid someone will steal it. Yeah. Okay. And first of all, you, you know, you can't patent an idea. So I've had students come in, I've got the best idea. Really? What's it worth? What's your idea worth? It's worth nothing. Your idea is worth nothing until you build value around it. So don't worry about someone trying to steal your idea. The best advice I can give to an entrepreneur is tell people about your idea. Because most people in the entrepreneurial world, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, are not out to steal your idea. They're out to help you. Entrepreneurs are just naturally collaborative. And so it, tell your idea to people. Ask for help. Ask for advice. You know, um, figure out where you need to go to de-risk your idea. Don't worry so much about someone trying to steal it. And investors don't sign NDAs. You know, they just don't as a rule. And if you're that worried about someone just stealing your idea, maybe you ought to rethink your idea. Because if it's that easy to steal, as soon as it starts be being successful, someone's going to steal it. A competitor will just steal it if it's that yeah. easier, just easy to Absolutely. steal. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so my advice to a young entrepreneur or, or a, even a seasoned entrepreneur is get out there, talk to people, tell them your idea, do customer discovery, um, get help, get make connections. That's how you get funding too. VCs don't usually, you know, advertise and take business plans and entrepreneurs that come in off the transom. It's usually a relationship, a warm introduction. So talk to people about your idea. Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice. And I think, do you think one of the dangers of entrepreneurship and some people get in this mindset as young entrepreneurs is just too much self-reliance as well? Where they just think I've got to do it all myself because I either can't trust others or I have no idea how to collaborate. Well, remember I said investors invest in management 
teams. Yeah. It's a team, not, not solopreneurs, because there's no way one person has the skills to do everything. And you need to be self-aware enough. Oh, entrepreneurs have to be self-aware. They have to know what they're good at and what they're bad at and then hire people with the skills that they don't have. For example, I'm an engineer. I love numbers. I love spreadsheets. I can do all of that stuff really, really well. I don't get marketing. <laughs> I mean, I understand the value of marketing. It's so incredibly valuable, but I don't know how to do it. So, you know, if, if I start another company, I'm going to hire the best marketing person that I know because I know that I can't do that. I don't have those skills. So self-awareness is huge. I think it is huge. I think it's like, and, and regardless of whether you're trying to attract VC capital, your lesson is across the board for anyone running a company or anyone trying to be an entrepreneur. Because, you know, you, if you try to do everything yourself, you're going to fail. And if you don't trust others, you're going to fail. And if you don't surround yourself with people who have complementary skills, yes, you're going to fail. Last two questions for you. One, what would you, for people out there interested in entrepreneurship or the journey or how it can benefit them and what they do every day, is there anything that you would recommend for people to read? Any kind of book or something they'd go watch or listen to? Yeah, there's a free Stanford University course on Udacity called How to Build a Startup. Steve Blank, we make all our students watch it. They're little videos, short little videos. It's free. You sign up with your email address. Um, and what the great thing is when you log in, it remembers where you were last time. So you don't have to sit through it all, you know, and, and it's not boring. They're actually great, short little, you know, three to four minute video clips. Um, so yeah, how to build a startup on Udacity. And then there's two books that we use in our Duke's Venture Accelerator book. It's Talking to Humans. It's all about customer discovery and interviewing your customer segment. And then testing with humans. So how do you get your MVP out there, your minimum viable product, your working prototype? How do you get it out there and test it, you know, with your users um, to de-risk your startup? So there are two very short, very quick reads, testing, talking to humans and testing with humans. We'll list all three of those resources on your landing page. I, I think those are great. I love the fact that the two resources that you use for that class are are both focused on testing and talking to human beings because so many entrepreneurs have a great idea and they forget that on the other end are humans, you know? So that's what we do for a living is try to translate for actual human beings. And it's an emotional thing. It's an emotional transaction. You have to understand that. You've got to get out there and talk to people. Yeah, that's so cool. So last question, and I will let you go because I know you're a very busy person. Um, if you could give your younger self, you've gone through a lot. If you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be? Well, th this doesn't really have to do with entrepreneurship. This would be advice for any young person. Don't take yourself so seriously. Don't stress out. I see young people. I had one in my office this morning, all stressed out about getting a job. She's a senior. And I'm like, your first job is not your forever job. Okay, just like the first house you buy is not your forever house. Life is flexible. You can change. These high school students are so stressed out about what college to go to, what major to major in. I changed colleges. I changed majors. I've changed careers five times in my life. So be flexible. Don't take yourself so seriously. Have fun. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of fun in my life. I have. I've had a lot of great experiences that the normal person hasn't had. Um, but so, so again, I'm not answering your question like a politician. Actually, I think that was a great answer. That was a wonderful answer. I think, you know, the, uh, I think I, I love your answer, actually, because I think that's great advice for anyone listening. You know, like, don't take yourself so seriously. 
at any age is great advice. Exactly. And and then the 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 connecting to another bit of advice I would say to that is um, overcoming your fear of something is one of the most powerful things you could ever do. Believe it or not, I was terrified to speak in public. Absolutely positively petrified. And now I do it for a living. I've been in front of 250 people before giving a talk. You know, I and and I was literally scared to death to do that. But I knew that it was a skill that would benefit me no matter what career I went into. So I made myself do it. I forced myself to do it. Just like water skiing. I was scared to death of water and snow skiing. But I forced myself to do them and I actually got good at it. And it's a powerful feeling, overcoming that fear. It is. I think people, you know, can benefit from getting in front of people and talking. You know, I have an improv background and I'm an introvert, but I love getting on stage and performing. And, you know, started doing that. And I'm an introvert. I don't, I don't like going to big functions and parties. But I love getting up on stage and having no idea what anyone's going to say next. That, that sort of like no net experience, I love it. And I think when we force ourselves into those situations, you learn a lot. Well, you also, by overcoming something you're afraid of, you gain a lot of self-confidence, you know? And it makes it easier to do it the next time with a different thing that you're afraid of, because we're all afraid of things. Fear is mostly lying to us, unless a bear is chasing us. We're, it's mostly <laughs> lying to us. You just yeah. have to be faster than the other person. <laughs> yeah, that's all. So thank you so much for being here today. This was a blast. Yeah, this was really fun. Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story. Brand Story.